Hello, and welcome to the History of the Goths. Defeat. The latest of the Goths' ventures into the Roman Empire can only be described as such. Every raiding party that moved into the Empire in the late 260s AD was destroyed, and the new Gothic fleet that proudly set sail from Oyum was devastated by nature, plague, and of course, the superior Roman navy. With this incredible loss of manpower and material, you would think that the Goths would be reeling. But no, it would take one more kick to the behind before the Goths threw in the towel. The year was 270. The Roman Emperor Claudius had died of the plague while in the Balkans. His lieutenant, Aurelian, declared soon after, and as so many before him, marched to Italy to fight another claimant to the imperial helm. With the troops along the Danube once again thinned, the king of the Goths, Canabaudes, gathered his men and crossed the Danube and began another run of pillaging of the Roman Balkan provinces. I would like to stop here for a moment as this is the first time that the king of the Goths, Canabaudes, is mentioned in any source. It seems to be a common hypothesis that this is actually either Caniva or even his son. Whatever his true identity, his army began a thorough plundering of the Roman provinces of Moesia and Thrace. The Goths would have free reign until 271, when Aurelian was finally able to make a move against the Goths. Knowing that Aurelian was on the move, the Goths began their journey back home, but their baggage train was attacked by Aurelian's legions and the Goths were defeated. The Gothic army was able to scramble back across the Danube, and Cannibaldes probably breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that he was able to make it out of the Roman Empire with his forces still intact. Any feeling of relief was no doubt shattered when the Goths realized that Aurelian was moving his men across the Danube into Gothic land. The Roman legions burnt every Gothic village they came upon, Knowing the end was near, Canabaudes halted his army's retreat and took a stand against Aurelian's forces. In the ensuing battle, over 5,000 Gothic warriors perished, including Canabaudes himself. Aurelian's revenge on the Goths was total. He took everything of value that could be found, including Canabaudes' royal chariot, and returned south of the Danube with a long line of Gothic captives in tow. The stunning victory of the Romans is somewhat misleading. The Roman Empire was still very weak, with the continued threat of the breakaway provinces in the west and the Palmyrene Empire in the east, which had taken over nearly all the eastern Roman provinces. With all of these threats looming, Aurelian abandoned the Roman province of Dacia to the north of the Danube. The Goths had been defeated and humiliated, but as always, it seems their luck had brought them a new opportunity. The now former Roman province of Dacia proved to be a vacuum which sucked in every tribe that neighbored it. Within years of Aurelian's order, Goths had migrated into the eastern portions of the former province. Much of the Roman population had been evacuated south of the Danube, so there was plentiful space to migrate into. Our sources say that the post-Roman Dacia was a bloody spectacle. Other than the Goths, the Typhalians, Gepids, and Vandals all moved into the abandoned province. We hear of a war being fought between the Goths and the Typhalians on one side and the Gepids and Vandals on the other. We should also not forget the other countless tribes that lived in close proximity, such as the Carpi and the Bastarnians. This brutal conflict north of the Danube resulted in many tribes being pushed into flight. 
Many of these fleeing tribes went south to the Roman border and either begged for settlement within the empire or fought the Romans for it. This would be the situation for our old friends the Carpi, who were settled in the province of Pannonia. Not much is known about the actual battles for post-Roman Dacia, but we do know that the Goths won this competition for the former province, having nearly the entirety of it within the Gothic domain by 300 AD. Their dominance was so certain that the Romans began to refer to Dacia as Gothia. The lands inhabited by the Goths now stretched from the Danube to the Don, from the mountains and mines of Dacia to the fertile plains of Oyum. This does not mean that Gothic unity would last, though, and now we must discuss the next chapter of the Gothic story, that of division. From this point onwards in the Gothic narrative, we know that the Goths will begin to split into two or more polities and develop separate institutions apart from each other. How and why this happened, we have absolutely no idea. The best theory I could find is that in the face of a large, very decentralized Gothic confederation that had just suffered catastrophic defeats at the hands of the Romans, lesser tribal leaders asserted their independence and broke free, establishing their own confederations of tribes. We know of at least the first two I mentioned, and these are much larger and more powerful than any other possible Gothic groups. But there could have been half a dozen Gothic political entities by the end of the 3rd century. This is not to say that the idea of being a Goth disappeared. These people all saw each other as members of the Goths and as of the same blood. They could all understand each other's language. They simply no longer lived as close in terms of society and government and there would never be a large unified Gothic confederation again. To the west of the Dniester and north of the Danube, we begin to hear of a group known as the Tervingi. On the other side of the Dniester, in Oyum, we find the Grothungi. What actually differentiates a Grothungian from a Tervingian is much harder to find than just their names. Their villages and housing would remain similar, as would their pottery and jewelry. There would be some cultural differences. For example, the Tervingi, who bordered the Roman Empire, would obviously take in more influence from Roman Greece. The Groithungi, on the other hand, experienced more Sarmatian influence. On a military note, the Groithungi were well-renowned for horsemanship, while the Tervingi produced primarily foot soldiers. Leadership of the Tervingi is an interesting subject. Their leader held the title not of king, but of judge. How great his powers were is debatable, but it does seem to be something of a strongman position. We do know that the judge was not absolute in power and could be overruled by council or if a large amount of the tribal elite were in disagreement. It seems that while the leader's position likely had a militaristic origin, he still had to walk a fine line when dealing with the elite who maintained order throughout the spacious Tervingen lands. The title of judge may have originated from the leader's duty to arbitrate in tribal disagreements and affairs. We do know that this position was passed down generationally, whether this was because of the family's influence on the position's election, or it was simply passed along father to son is unknown. Though in the grand scheme of things, we do know that between 330 and 376, that the position was held by the same family, and it is quite possible that the position had been held by their clan for much longer. Beneath the judge was the tribal elite, which played a large part in maintaining order throughout the Tervingian land. This group would become quite wealthy with the increasing trade and tribute that came along with peaceful relations with Rome. 
In fact, we know from the archaeological remains left behind in Tervingian cemeteries that social stratification increased throughout Gothic lands around this time. You may be thinking that I misspoke, that the Goths were simply incapable of peace, judging by the fact that every episode thus far has been filled with conflict and bloodshed. But no, peace is here. Hoorah. I will get to the relations between the Goths and the Romans in a little bit. From the politics of the Tervingi to its society, we find an agricultural and pastoral land dotted with villages and farms that usually lay close to rivers and bodies of water. There existed large concentrations of settlements and population around nexuses of the rivers and especially along the river Dniester. Before delving deeper into Tervingian society, we must take a look outside its borders. The Tervingi may have just been another group of uncivilized barbarians, the Romans, but to the rest of their neighbors, they were a powerful force to be reckoned with. The Tervingi dominated all the neighboring groups with the exception of the Grethungi and the Romans. This included the Typhalians, the Dacians, and the Sarmatians, as well as other Germanic peoples. There was an exchange of trade of people between these groups, and we know that other Germanic peoples did migrate into the lands of the Tervingi and assimilated it into the Goths, probably lured by the economic prosperity of the Goths or the promise of jobs as warriors and soldiers. Why would people migrate into Gothic land to be warriors, you may be asking? Well, at least by the late 290s, the Tervingi had an arrangement with the Romans, something of a Federate-esque deal by which Tervingian Gothic soldiers would serve in the Roman legions. In 297, Gothic soldiers marched south of the Danube and went with the Roman Caesar Galerius to fight the Persians. This was not a one-sided deal, though, and as the Goths provided soldiers to Rome, Rome opened the Danube border for traders and regularly sent tribute to the Tervingi, a truly beneficial arrangement for both sides. Now on to the east. In terms of a written record, the Grethungi nearly disappeared for a century. Following the 270s, they did not border the Roman Empire, and thus their activities were less likely to be penned down than those of the Tervingi. The word Goth during this period of time, when written by a Roman source, almost always meant Tervingi. This does not mean that we have nothing on the Grethungi, though what we do have is mostly thanks to the archaeological record. The society of the Grethungi was very similar to that of the Tervingi, which isn't surprising since there was probably a lot of moving between the two groups as they shared a border. The Grethungi had a king, whose powers we don't know much about, but it's safe to say that they were probably similar to those of the Tervingian judge, with the same limits imposed by the powerful social elite. The kingship would also stick within one family for a great deal of time, if not for the entire existence of the Groithungi. The Roman relations with the Groithungi were minimal, explaining their absence from Roman records at the time. This kingdom, without bordering a major power such as Rome, had much more free reign than the Tervingi. It seems that the Groithungi used this freedom to expand into the lands of other peoples, especially to their north. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. Back to the Tervingi. So peace was established, and the Tervingi and Romans were friends now. Awesome. But what happens when the Romans do as the Romans do? A.K.A. have a civil war. Well, those neighbors of Rome have the difficult decision of choosing who to support. You can't really blame the Tervingi for this conflict. It seems to have been quite the custom for those surrounding the great Roman Empire to support one side in the Civil War ever since the time of Caesar and Pompey. Supporting the victor meant great rewards, tributes, and the friendship of the emperor. 
supporting the loser or staying neutral, often resulted in a Roman invasion or the enmity of the emperor. This is what happened to the Terpingi. To explain this, I do have to delve into Roman history for a minute, so my apologies. In 284 AD, Diocletian became emperor, and after a few years he created something called the Tetrarchy, in which there would be two Augusti and two Caesars to rule the Roman Empire. It all went pretty well until he abdicated in 305. Thereafter, his successors would continually struggle against each other for sole power. One of the last civil wars of this short period erupted in 314, between the Augusti Constantine of the West and Licinius of the East. This is where the Tervingi come back into the picture. The Tervingi judged that Licinius would win the civil war and sent thousands of Gothic warriors to support him. Unfortunately for our Gothic friends, Licinius was the loser in this war, and just like Licinius's armies, the Tervingian army was destroyed. Peace was agreed upon by the two Augusti in 317 AD. Some provinces were traded between the two, and now the boundary between their dominions was right in the middle of the Balkans. That meant the Roman border with the Goths was split down the middle between Constantine and Licinius. Now, if the Romans wanted to tempt the Goths back into their old ways of raiding the Balkans, they were doing a pretty good job at it. The Roman dividing line in the Balkans meant that much of the Roman forces that would be stationed on the Danube were stationed on that line that divided the two paranoid Augusti. The Tervingi took advantage of the situation, and in the spring of 323, a Tervingian Gothic army under the command of a man named Razamod, who was probably a member of the Tervingian warrior elite, crossed the Danube into the Roman territory of Licinius. The aims were the same as always, to take what could be taken and to get it back home. Unfortunately for the invading Tervingian force, Constantine was quick to respond. He crossed the line separating his land from Licinius's and pursued the Tervingi back across the Danube, where his legions destroyed Razumov's forces and killed him in the process. Now you may think that Licinius would thank Constantine for this act. I mean, he had beaten back barbarian invaders who were ravaging his land. But no, Licinius was outraged by Constantine's crossing of the line, and war broke out again between the two Augusti. After Constantine crossed back south of the Danube, the Teravingi again marched to Licinius's banner, and he accepted them. You know, I'm no Roman emperor, but even if you're in a civil war, I'd say that allying with the guys who were pillaging your land and citizens just a few months ago is not a great look. That's what happened, though. And yet again, a Tervingian army marched south across the Danube, headed by a Gothic warrior by the name of Elisa, who, like Razamod, was probably part of the Tervingian warrior elite. Unfortunately for the Tervingi Goths, this war would go just as well for Licinius as the first one. Constantine devastated Licinius's forces in every encounter. I have to say, with the number of Licinius's men who died during this war, the Goths would be lucky to have any of their men return home. By 324, the war was over, and Constantine was sole emperor of the Roman Empire. He allowed Licinius to live, only for him to begin planning an uprising against Constantine in league with the Teravingi. Remember, the Teravingi had just lost two wars against Constantine. It was not a friendly relationship between them, and they were probably happy to try anything that might get Constantine off the imperial throne. The plan fell through, though, when someone spilled the word to Constantine, who then outlawed Licinius. Licinius attempted to flee to the land of the Teravingi, 
only to be caught in Thessalonica and hanged. The tide had turned, and the Teravingi Goths had lost their gamble. It was now time for them to be on the defensive. In 328, Constantine reopened a stone bridge across the Danube into Dacia. It was a clear sign that Constantine had not abandoned Roman responsibilities north of the Danube. The Teravingi, seeing that they could do little to the south, began to advance further to the northwest of Dacia into what is modern-day Transylvania. The Sarmatian peoples living there resisted the Gothic encroachment, and in 332, after several Tervingian victories, the Sarmatians called on the Romans for aid. Constantine was quick to send his son and an army to the Sarmatians' rescue. The Roman legions ambushed the Tervingi and forced them back. Constantine took this victory as an opportunity to impose peace on the seemingly always disturbed Danubian frontier. The judge of the Tervingi came to meet with Constantine, and a treaty was signed in which the Tervingi would again become something like featherettes of the Roman Empire. This is striking, as all of the sources of this also list the name of the Tervingian judge, Ariaric. Ariaric agreed to send Tervingian soldiers to be auxiliaries in the Roman army in return for a yearly Roman tribute. Another part of this treaty was the opening of the entire border for trade. Merchants could cross at any point along the Roman Tervingian border. This opened up the Tervingian heartland not only to Roman goods and coins, but also ideas such as Christianity, which had become the Roman state's favored religion with Constantine's rule. Another part of this agreement may have been that Ariaric's son, Aoric, was to be raised in the Roman city of Constantinople. This was a common practice of the Romans, as it often made the future monarchs much friendlier to the interests of Rome. And so this episode ends, with peace on the horizon. But how long can this time of mutual gain and harmony last? Who knows? Well, I know. But be patient. So until next time, this has been The History of the Goths.